invite them up Sunday, you all can meet them. Uh, we're, they're still coming on June 11th, but uh, I'll see if maybe he can bring his kids. And, uh, I don't know. That'd be good. Uh, you know, outside of a business meeting, just meet them, meet him as a as a dad and husband or whatnot. All right. So um, we're in uh, Genesis 35. Uh, we are uh, coming up on the end of the story of Jacob. So Genesis 35. And uh, the story of Jacob ends in 36. And actually, chapter 36 is mostly the uh, genealogy of Ishmael, um, or es Esau, one of them. And so this is sort of the end of it. Uh, certainly is the end of Isaac. He dies in the end. And Jacob's story then gets uh, overtaken by the Joseph story. Jacob will die at the end. Uh, he is carried in back to the promised land from, from Egypt. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, his story is going to end in chapter 35, 36. And so what we'll do is when we finish 36, maybe next week or the week after, um, we're going to take a break because I need it. Uh, uh, we've done the whole story of, uh, of Joseph. And we're probably going to look at Psalm 23. And I, I, I can almost guarantee you... Um, you will see Psalm 23 in ways you've never seen it before because I've been reading a little bit on it and I've been seeing things I've never seen before. And I have taught and preached and, and, and whatnot from Psalm 23 more than any other passage of the Bible, most because of funerals. But um, um, So I think that will be a real blessing. And the Christological connection uh, to Psalm 23 is, is really important. Uh, well, let me uh, do the thing that I, I don't like to do. Uh, when I was a professor, I would tell my students not to do this. And then when I help young preachers, I tell them not to do this. And that is, I'm going to tell you where we're going to go before we go there. Okay? This is something that annoys me. If I'm reading a term paper, and it says, I'm going to do this, don't tell me what you're going to do. It annoys me, for one. Right? It also puts a time clock in, in your head. So if a preacher stands up and says, i got three points for you. Go, do, and be. I don't know. I just made those up. And in your head, if go took 20 minutes, you're thinking, okay, I got 40 more minutes before the conclusion, mm -hmm. right? But if you just go do and be without telling people, you just you take the people with you, um, uh, I think it's, it's a smoother ride. So I'm going to break that rule, and I'm going to tell you exactly what is in this, this chapter, right? There's no good news whatsoever. It is all sad news. Uh, one, Rachel dies, uh, Jacob's favorite wife. Language I don't recommend you, you use, but it would, it's faithful to the decks. And his preferred wife, uh, the chief wife, would be a more uh, ancient Eurasian phrase. His chief wife dies. Uh, Reuben responds by violating Jacob's concubine. So you thought 34 is behind you. It is not. This will not be the last time of sexual violence shows up in Genesis. So you remember, we, we left Sodom thinking, okay, glad you know God destroyed the pagans. The people of God will never do that. Then you read the story of Jacob, uh, or really the story of Abraham uh, with Hagar. Uh, so sexual violence is, is, is uh, a theme that does pop up in Genesis. Finally, Isaac dies. So let this be a warning to you. Uh, if, if you're wanting to read you know, uh, happy things and all that, uh, this, this is not the chapter to turn to. But like in all things, we, um, it is the word of God meant for our application. Um, but what we need to see ultimately is that this is life east of Eden. This is life in the wilderness. 
And Jacob is still a sojourner in the wilderness. And despite all of these things happening, God proves faithful to Jacob in the end. So from here on out, we're, we're going to see the ugliness of life east of Eden. Um, and it isn't until the end of the Joseph story that we really start to see God drawing his people to a new garden. And that's going to take Moses and Joshua to finally get there. So, so we're supposed to see just how ugly it is. Let's start with the death of Rachel, in, uh, starting in verse 16. Uh, says, Then they journeyed from Bethel, when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Well, again, all bad news here, right? Now, but notice that Jacob is moving from Bethel uh, to Bethlehem. So remember, Beth means house of. So Bethel is house of God. Bethlehem. Um, means house of bread. Right? And, but you'll notice that there's two names here. This is the first time Bethlehem is introduced uh, in, in the Bible. Um, and, and while they're on their way, she goes into labor. Um, uh, this is one of the things, if you ever study the, um, uh, those who went into the West, uh, the 49ers and whatnot, the Oregon Trail, uh, all of them, is that it was not uncommon for women to get pregnant along the way or to give birth along the way. They left while they were pregnant. And the reason you did that is because uh, of weather. You had the best chance of making it all the way there uh, if, if through, through a certain uh, time of year. It's like going uh, Mount Everest. If you want to climb Mount Everest, you have like a six-week period of, of having a chance to do it. Um, and so, so if, if you found yourself pregnant, you're going, right? And, and uh, people gave birth on the way to Oregon, California, or whatnot. So here's Rachel. It is, uh, uh, she, she's pregnant, and, and the, the, the language is, it's, it's odd language, but it implies they were close to their destination, but didn't quite make it before she, she went in and gave birth. I've told the story before when, um, when we were waiting to have our daughter, um, Amanda had Braxton Hicks. And so we went up the last four days, like three of the four days, an hour drive to Owensboro for us. And so we were trying to be as near the hospital as we could, so we would just go to Owensboro. One day, you know, we went to Best Buy, and, and the guy, the sales weasel came, and I said, look, uh, we had a big gift card, a $100 gift card we were going to use. I said, we will spend money here, but we're really here to have a baby, right? Leave me alone. And we went to uh, or uh, Orchard. Uh, we took Lottie with us. And uh, I I've told the story before. We were in the corn maze. And my wife had this moment of, um, what if I go into labor in the corn maze and we can't get out? Like, look, car that way. I'll make a path, right? You know, like, I'll pay for the corn we lost, okay, honey? Don't worry about it, you know? But, uh, of course, she, she went into labor when we weren't in Owensboro. Um, now, Ephrath means uh, Bethlehem, or it becomes Bethlehem. The name is changed to Bethlehem. The name here means place of fruitfulness. And I think there's irony here. For one, she's fruitful outside of Ephrath. But inside Ephrath, or as she approaches, is death. So 
So fruitfulness in Genesis speaks of life. Be fruitful and multiply. But as they approach the place of fruitfulness, they are mourning death. So they have a baby, Benjamin. There's fruitfulness, but that baby came at the cost of, of life. I think there's some really uh, uh, irony there. Um, and, and it's interesting, isn't it, that the first reference to Bethlehem in the Bible is associated with death and tragedy. Um, we did a whole series on uh, the Bible's use of Bethlehem several Christmases ago. I don't remember when. Uh, this was our, our first look at it, this passage, um, because this is how we're introduced to Bethlehem. Um, what is the last uh, use, a reference to Bethlehem? One of the last, the main one? The birth of Jesus. What happens in Bethlehem? Herod comes and turns it into a place of blood again. So, so this, Bethlehem is bookend on, uh, it's, it's overcast with death. Rachel on one hand, and the slaughter of the innocents on the other. And what, what do you have in the middle of Bethlehem is the royal priest is born. David of Bethlehem, Jesus born, Jesus of Nazareth born in Bethlehem. Uh, so so it's, it's really incredible what the Bible does with this city, this small town um, that, that begins here. Well, she's suffering through what the text calls a hard labor, and she fights until her child is born. Uh, I think this is something we, we men will never understand, the, the deep love that moms have for their kids. Uh, when, when, we, again, when we were uh, having a vandal, um, Manda was just complaining about incredible pain over here. I, I don't know. And, and I said, well, let, I'll go get a nurse. We'll figure out what to do. I don't know what you're talking about. She goes, no, if she's comfortable, I'm okay. Like, well, I'm not going to sit here and listen to you complain about it all night. I'm going to go get a nurse. I didn't say that. But, but there was something that, that logically broke her ribs from kicking. And, and all she would say is, if only I could get him this other way so he can kick these ribs and get these. Like, that's as bad as negative as she got, right? It really is amazing the, 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 what a mother would do for, for a child. And here, she lays her life down for her baby. Uh, it's a hard, hard labor. And remember, her, the nurse died in, in the previous passage. So, so she has a midwife, yes, but nurses, nurses has, has already gone. Um, now, uh, we see that she, she gives birth to a son. This is a fulfillment of her prayer back in Genesis 30. She called his name Joseph. So if she has Joseph, what does she want? She wants another boy. Um, and this is all part of that, uh, that scene where her and her uh, sister are in conflict with, with each other. Um, the phrase, do not fear, is the first time it shows up in the Bible. It'll show up all over the place in the, in the Old and New Testament. Um, I've always heard it said. I've not done the math. Do not fear is used 365 times in the Bible, at which point preachers say, so too you shouldn't fear 365 days of the year. I don't know if that's why it says that 365 times in the Bible or not. It's just there. There you do with that, whatever it is, is that, that, that you want. Um, now, given this story, I think we can understand or sympathize with Jacob. Not that it's right, but it's understandable why he is so protective of Benjamin. He has two sons of the chief wife, Rachel. One is apparently mauled by wild animals, according to his brothers, Joseph. Only to discover later he was sold into slavery. And so at the end of the Joseph story, when Joseph says, bring me Benjamin, Jacob will not have anything to do with it. Right? And they have to go through this process of negotiation. Because Benjamin is all he has. And, and Benjamin then becomes... 
the last remnants and memory of his wife. Now, we, we, we get that, right? You lose someone deeply. There, there are things that we attach their identity to. So for a long time, uh, uh, you know, uh, my, the only thing we really got from my uh, maternal grandfather was his truck. And that truck sat in our driveway for decades. Right? And, and it was a big deal when Dad sold that truck. Now, he eventually got to where it couldn't run, won't run. It's not worth the trouble and the hassle. Things are growing out of it at some point. But that, that's Pawpaw's truck. Right? Um, uh, I have memorabilia in my office from, from my grandfather. I have a key to the business that he, he ran. I have, I have the last remaining key of it as far as I know. Uh, we, we, we do this all the time. Um, it, it, it may be you, you keep certain shirts that your, your mom or your dad wore just because the, the smell is associated with it or that was his or her favorite outfit. And, you know, we, we, we do these things all the time. Um, and, and you can kind of sympathize with Benjamin. This is all he has of, of, of his chief wife. Um, and this is the first time, uh, as from what I can remember, uh, that the gift of life comes at the cost of another life. This is tragedy uh, east of Eden. And it, it really does show that uh, every child is a blessing. And in verse 18, uh, she, she dies. The language is interesting there. And as her soul was departing, can, can, can we get distracted a little bit here? Uh, does your Bible say soul? I'm interested to see what your translation says. You want to have anything else? Anyone other than soul and spirit? <laughs> Breathe her last. Breathe her last? That's probably a, a, a closer to the Hebrew idea. What, what translation is that, Miss Faith? Yeah, oh, the not inspired version. That's good. That's not, I'm teasing. Um, that's good. That's probably, probably more accurate. So everyone else pretty much has, has soul. Um, uh, this is a big theological debate that we, we, we cannot chase this rabbit, although I'm going to um, at least get a good running start on it. The word soul in the Old Testament is very, very complicated. Uh, this is where translations are interpretations, and sometimes translations, there just isn't a good English word. This word that we translate soul um, when in English, we associate the soul with the immaterial part of ourselves. And I think that is in the Old Testament. After all, what would you call Samuel when the uh, necromancer calls him up? Right? Uh, what, what would you call that? Isaiah implies um, people in Sheol communicating with, with each other. Right? New Testament's clear that there's uh, a body-soul dichotomy. Uh, Paul will say, whether in body or in spirit, I don't know, but I was caught up in the third heavens. Yeah, Don? I thought that uh, God gave him, said his spirit would return to God who gave his soul. Wouldn't that be spirit? Uh, is that Old Testament? <coughs> soul is usually your physical body, isn't it? It's your immaterial part. It's, it's Well, look, uh, um, I'm a dichotomous or dualist, which means I believe in body and soul. There are trichotomists, these words would be on your quiz, who believe in body, soul, spirit. Or sometimes body, spirit, mind, body, soul. Soul and spirit are oftentimes interchangeable. And so, so um, I'm not a trichotomist. I think the texts they use don't support that. Uh, I think culturally we are, but that's a, that's a whole other animal. I think she died. Huh? Yes, yeah, she died. But but what does it mean her soul left her in the Hebrew idea? So uh, 
And, and the reason I bring this up is, is because when we're reading through our Bible, it's a fine translation, but, but I'm not sure it accurately presents what the text means. Um, I've got another problem. I know a couple of people who died at Baal. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the word for soul, wind, or so spirit, wind, and, uh, oh gosh, breath. Yeah, those are, it's the same word. So when Jesus says, um, um, you don't know where the wind comes and goes, but the spirit moves, it's the same word for wind and spirit, which makes translation a lot of fun. Um, but here's the first reference to soul. God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly, moving uh, the moving creature that has life and found. So you can, the course I use for First King James. The word soul here is right here, life. But it's in the context of animals. You see why this is a complicated issue? It's the first time you have it. It's all over the place in the creation story. And in there, we could say it means life. But, but what, what we'll see, and again, we, we can only touch on this, it runs deeper than, than life. I'll give you a few others. Uh, God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Uh, and he became a living soul. I put out being. Some modern translation will say being. He became a living person. Uh, but it, it, it's the word nephesh. It's, it's the same word that describes uh, animals uh, be, having life. Or uh, 27, 25, um, he said, bring it near to me and I will eat of my son's <coughs> medicine. My soul may bless you. Well, it's the same word. Nephesh. Okay. One more and, and then I'll get more detail. His soul, uh, uh, he, he loved Dinah. I, I struggle with King James. I'm becoming a millennial. Um, if you remember the story of Adana, right? He just, my soul was all for us, like watching Mermaid or something. And, but Daddy, I love her. Um, um, and, but, but we translate it soul, but it's the same word. It's the word meaning life. Now, at its root, my understanding is the word means throats. Okay, let, let me give you two examples of this. Numbers 11, and now our strength, because this is English, right? But it's our throats are dried up. They're out in the wilderness, the thirsty. It means throat. It's the same word, nephesh. Uh, Psalm 105, his feet were hurt with fetters, his neck, nephesh, his neck, his throat. Now, you think of what in the same hills is the one had to do with the other. Well, in, in Hebrew in particular, ancient Eastern cultures, uh, simple words take on broader meanings. And we do this in, in English. Um, um, and so the throat is where... Um, Controls so many things about your life, you, the air you breathe, the food you eat, the words you speak, all of that. It's a source of life. And so, so the word means more than just, than just you're a living person. It's, it's, it's your very being, right? Um, so let me give you a few examples. Genesis 46, these are the sons of Leah. Um, and, and it says um, they're uh, – oh. What's the word? See, this is King James. I did this in ESV. Um, it basically says that uh, the sons of Leah, all of these are her nephesh, right? Um, they're, all of them are, are, are you know, living, living beings. Let me give you a better example. A person who is a murderer is someone who takes the throat, someone who takes life, right? Or a, a kidnapper is someone who takes 
life, right? The throat, um, the nuts. So, so what, what does this mean? Is on one end, it describes all living creatures, but but when it relates to humans, at least it's the way I understand it, is it's deeper than that. It, it's it's your very being is tied to it. Let me see if I can prove it to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your nephesh. Have you ever thought, how do you love God with your soul? What does that mean? Right? I mean, you really think, like, heart? Okay, I can, that's an English language I can kind of get. What does it mean to love your soul? Well, in the Bible, to, to, to give your soul is, is, is a, a function of being. It's your life. It's, it's your identity, your passion. It's who you are. So here, Rachel, um, her being was departing. Her, her very life was, was leaving her. It's a fancy way to say, say that she died, but it's a Hebrew way of saying that she died. So just notice that when we speak of death, particularly with the influence of secular evolution uh, uh, and, and materialism, we just say they passed away. They died. Their body's no more. The Hebrew language was much deeper than that, that they died. Um, the, the very being cease, cease, right? Now, I think if you keep reading the, the Old Testament, there's life after death and all that. Uh, but you can see why the Pharisees and Sadducees argued over this stuff. They disagreed significantly. Uh, Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, and they did not believe we had an immaterial soul. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels, uh, the divine council. They didn't believe in any of that. The Pharisees did because they believed in all 39 books of the Old Testament. You remember Paul, uh, to get out of the situation, he says, I'm only here because I'm a Pharisee, and the Sadducees are arguing with me about theology, right? And that just, you know, like Calvinist uh, dudes uh, fighting with the Arminians at Southern Seminary, right? You just mention it, and they're so distracted, you can go on and do something else, right? Um, but nevertheless, uh, that, is, that is a... That's a distraction. Thank you for letting me nerd out. I wrote a whole paper, my penultimate paper at Southern. It's 32 pages long on this issue. Um, it was not on this specific issue, but the impact that neuroscience is having on our belief about the soul. You are going to sleep after I said that. So let's move on. She names her son Ben-Oni, okay? Ben-Oni could mean one of two things. I think it's purposely ambiguous. It could mean... Son of vigor, right? Ben means son. Uh, um, son of vigor, strength. That's good. It makes sense, right? Her strength. Um, it gave birth even, even in her dying moments. What she probably means is son of my sorrow. Son of my misfortune. And that's why you can see in the same verse, Jacob hears. Now, usually the, the man names the child. Uh, read Zechariah's name in John the Baptist, right? Um, but her dying breath is, name him this. And Jacob says, no, no, we're not going to do that. Because the naming of a child has, has a story to tell, usually with the nature of the conception of birth, or is prophetic regarding its future. So read the book of Ruth. All the names, almost all the names, are significant to the story. Right? So uh, Naomi, which means princess, I believe, uh, or uh, no, it means pleasant. She changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. Why? She went from being a pleasant person to a bitter person. 
her husband Elimelech, my God is king, leaves the land where God is king and dies. He goes to live among the pagans. Their sons, Malin and Kilian, which means sick and dying, they go off to Moab and they get sick and die, both of them. Right? So names are important in the Bible. And so it gets changed from Ben-Oni to Benjamin, which, um, which means son of my right hand. And the right hand, of course, was the position of prominence. Jacob um, gives him a name which means the exact opposite of what Rachel probably intended. Uh, not the son of sorrow, but son of my right hand. Um, now, Benjamin, we did this with the other uh, sons, he becomes the ancestor of some uh, significant figures. Ehud, uh, the left-handed dude who stabs the king. Uh, judges, read that um, for your own entertainment. I would love for us to go through Judges. I'm scared to do it, but I'd love for us to go through Judges. Um, the men would like for us to go through Judges. Let me just say that, right? I mean, there is not a good character in Judges, and they get progressively worse. Judges is what got me into the Bible. Uh, Ehud was a Benjaminite. King Saul was a Benjaminite. Mordecai Esther were, ben were uh, Benjaminites. I didn't know that. And, of course, uh, Paul the Apostle was a descendant of Benjamin. Um, uh, Jacob says this prophecy regarding Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. So what you get with Benjamin is he becomes known for being a um, warlike tribe. Uh, this is best seen in Judges. Judges ends with a civil war. It's basically 11 tribes against one, and the one tribe is little old Benjamin. And it is a grotesque story that picks up imagery from Sodom and Gomorrah, um, where in, in, in Judges, the, uh, the daughter is offered and the uh, mob takes the daughter. She is abused to the point of death. And then the dad goes and does things. Um, you could read it in the Judges. I, this, is, this is a theory I have. I think Judges is written by someone who's not a fan of King Saul because it ends with the Benjaminites causing warfare, civil war. Who's the first king of Israel? Son of Benjamin. Um, so you do with that whatever you want. Um, but this is, this is his, his birth. It comes in the context of death. Um, in verse 1920, uh, we've really got to move on. Uh, he buries her on the way to Bethlehem. He sets a pillar over a tomb. Uh, this appears to be nothing more than, than a simple monument. But like the, the burial stone of Deborah the nurse, this becomes a landmark, a significant landmark, because it says there, which is there to this day. And remember, this is first written, I believe, by Moses in the wilderness as they're coming into the promised land. And I do think there are editors of the Pentateuch. And so, so they would, so this could apply to the Moses generation, it could apply to a later editor generation, saying, I can show you exactly where Rachel was buried. It's right there, right? No one's touched it. Um, and by the way, First uh, Samuel um, 10, when you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin. So, so, so it's still there. It's still a significant marker um, this time. And they go to the Tower Eater, and uh, location isn't really known. Um, but it seems to have been a significant location for shepherds. So that's the death of Rachel. In verse 22, a single verse, we get Reuben violating um, his father's concubine. While Israel lived in that land of Bethlehem, 
Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So he is sleeping with his, some of his half-sibling's mother. Okay? Uh, this is grotesque. Yes, I get it. And you're thinking, why is the Bible so weird? Well, because the Bible reflects reality. Uh, we, we live in this terrible world still. We still live east of Eden. Um, this is a, an odd thing for us. But if we read it as an ancient Near Eastern reader, there are some things that make sense. First of all, this act is probably done to secure that Leah becomes the chief wife, not Bilhah. Bilhah is the servant of Rachel. And so by doing this, Leah becomes the chief wife, the wife of prominence. And this, this is important with a lot of things in uh, ancient Near Eastern culture. Uh, this was not unusual for stuff like this to happen. Actually, we see it later in the Bible. This is also probably an act of rebellion against Jacob. That is that Reuben is likely doing this uh, as a front to Jacob's authority. And remember what we just read about Dinah. Jacob did not protect Dinah. The boys did. So this could be in response to that, that Reuben is, is um, wanting to take over. Can you think of a story uh, where... A son sleeps with his father's concubines in an act of revolution. David, David and Absalom. Remember, that was done publicly. And so he takes his throne. And remember, David left his concubines behind to, to, so, so that they can maintain the palace. So when he gets back, what Absalom does is he just takes the concubine, publicly violates her. This is all evil. All of this is evil. Yeah, 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 yeah. It just gets worse and worse. <laughs> so um, this, by the way, backfires against Reuben. And uh, Audrey put it up here. 1 Chronicles 5. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. So, so if you read the rest of Genesis, you'll see this. Um, so much as uh, Esau didn't get his birthright, Reuben was robbed of his. Not through deception, but through uh, sin. Um, and uh, this story, I, I went, I, didn't I put these up here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just got some things wrong. Order. So they're from 1 Corinthians 5. This story should also sound familiar in Genesis. What happens to Noah? He gets off the boat, right? He creates a garden, right? So, so you remember that the flood, we're not going to get through everything. So you've got to suffer through this for another week. I'm sorry. You get off the, the, or the flood story is the reverse of creation, right? So, so when the waters reach their peak, you're at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, right? The Spirit of God hover over the earth, which was full of water. Genesis 1, 2. And then what happens is a new story of creation. As the waters recede, light comes out. And then as it goes, you have separation of water and sky, day 2. Right, then, then the land comes out of the water. That's what it would look like, right? Day three. You could do that with day four, day five, day six. And Noah's ark lands on Mount Ararat. Now, Noah means rest. So when Noah rested, yeah, Don? It doesn't say that rested on Mount Ararat. The mountains of Ararat. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So in the mountains of Ararat... Uh, which I'm trying to remember what Ararat means. I think it's significant. Anyways, he rested and came out on the... So, so what you have in the ark is a new Eden. 
you have the reference to wood, tree, it's the ark, um, and you have animals on the inside, and you have man and his family. Noah has three sons. Adam had three sons, right? So all of that is right there. When Noah gets out, he creates a garden, a vineyard, if you will. And what happens is he is naked and not ashamed, but that becomes a source of temptation, particularly for his son, his seed. It's a weird story, isn't it? What did Ham do? Here's where I land. You can disagree with me. If Danny were here, he would correct me, okay? Uh, and if Frank were here, he would tell me I should read the King James. So um, it says that, that Ham uncovered his nakedness, Genesis 9.22. What is a man's nakedness? I think it is a reference to a man's wife. Can I prove it to you biblically? Uh, here's two references. I give you. I give you a few more. Leviticus 18. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. Seems pretty clear there, doesn't it? Deuteronomy 22. A man shall not take his father's wife, so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Now remember what I've said about Genesis and a little bit of Exodus. Is you get these narratives. Part of their purpose is when you get the law, you have a narrative that goes with them. Much like today, there may be a, a new sign up on your street, and someone says, why'd they put that sign up? And you'd say, well, let me tell you what my neighbor did. You have a story associated with the law. Much of Genesis comes back in the law. Here is one of those. Why do we need this law? Is this a temptation for you and me? No. But if you're an Israelite, you're reading this law, like, oh, we don't want to be the seed of the serpent like Ham. You remember that, that Noah curses Canaan, the son of Ham. Here are your options. Ham already had Canaan, or Canaan is the, was conceived through this. Now, I could be wrong on this interpretation. I think what you're getting here with Reuben is, is a flashback to that bizarre story. Because what we want is to see there are bad people, there are good people. Bad people do all these bad things, like Ham did, like Sodom and Gomorrah did, like, like what happened to Dinah and the Shechemites. But if you read the Bible, it's like, okay, I, I get that, but the good people are doing them too. What does that tell you about our human condition? What you have already in, in, in this rest of this passage is, is our three enemies are right there. You have death, death of Isaac and Rachel. You have the serpents, because the see the serpent language is, is all the way through here. And, and, and you have sin, just ugly sin. All of them right here. And it isn't the Ishmaelites or the Edomites. It's the Israelites who are doing this. And that's where you make your Christological connection. Read the genealogy of Jesus. We did a four-part sermon series on that years ago, and you, you were bored to tears, I'm sure. But there's hardly anyone good in it until Christ comes. He becomes one of us and dies in our place and, and, and for our sins. Um, Don't forget Judah. Jude? Judah. Don't forget him. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to get any better. Yes, this, this is another reason why we're going to take a break. <laughs> I, he's the guy with the scepter. <laughs> yeah, yeah he's, he's the 
ancestor of Jesus. Let's real quick do the death of Isaac. We'll call it a night, if, if that's okay. 23, um, uh, at the end of verse 22, now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, uh, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, uh, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Ephtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan and Ram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last, he died, and was gathered his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now, I said there's no good news in this passage, and there's not, but there is. This is really the good news part, is, is this, this passage is bookended with death. The death of Rachel, the death of Isaac, in the middle is life. It's, it's the place of fruitfulness. God had promised Abraham, I would make you a father of many nations. And we're seeing east of Eden where death rules and reigns. The serpent rules and reigns. God's promises are being kept. And so we get these 12 sons of Jacob, 12 sons of Israel. And these, in general, become the 12 tribes of, of Israel. Um, so... Uh, the death of Isaac, um, he hasn't been mentioned in a narrative context. Now, you know, you'll find the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in terms of the narrative, he's not been around since chapter 28. But, but uh, what we do see is that while Jacob is away to Padam Haran, Isaac moves from Beersheba to Hebron. And Hebron is where Abraham and Lot um, separated. Abraham went towards Hebron. Lot went towards Sodom. So that decision, which was the lesser of the land, um, is still in, in, in play. This is also where David first began to rule. Um, he had to uh, conquer, basically, Jerusalem before it became his capital. Hebrew, uh, Hebron was the first capital. He lived for 180 years, which is a blessing. Uh, God bless him with long life. Um, yeah, so we, we can skip that. One, one last thing is... It's interesting, isn't it, that the two brothers, Esau and Jacob, they reconcile enough to bury their father. Um, deaths will either tear a family apart or bring them together. It's usually tear them apart, but every once in a while, every once in a while, it would bring them together. And there's something beautiful about this, isn't it? Um, that they were able to put all their issues aside so they could honor their dad. One of the reasons why division at the death of someone is so ugly is because you're failing to do the one thing you're called to do. That's to honor the person deceased. Instead, you come and you make it all about your issues. I mean, it is sin. At least Jacob and Esau got it right. Let me give you two quick applications and uh, hopefully uh, you, you'll still come back next week. One, God uses broken people to accomplish great things. Reuben will be the good guy when he's the only guy that wants to save Joseph from being sold into slavery. He's the bad guy here. Um, it's, 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 it's nice, isn't it, that the Bible, most of the characters are three-dimensional. It's not black hat, white hat. It's, it's the guys we're rooting for are guys we don't want to root for at times. So when you read the Bible, you're screaming for redemption, even for the heroes. Uh, God uses broken people to do great things. He still does, you and me, you and me. This is why religion is not sufficient. Grace is what we need. Secularism is a religion. 
If you make one mistake in the religion of secularism, your life is ruined. There's no grace. The Bible comes along and says, there is no one who is good. Religion will damn us all. What we need is grace. And God's grace reaches people like Reuben, like the Shechemites, like the Sodomites. Yeah, like you and me. <laughs> you and me. We're not the heroes of the story. We're the villain. Finally, a God promises are not mitigated by tragedy. They're not, they're not stopped. So this, this passage is full of ugliness. But God's promises are slowly marching forward. All along the way, the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a thousand reasons why it shouldn't have worked out. There's only one reason why it did, and that's because God was providential over the story. Abraham could have gone down to Egypt and lost his wife on two occasions. Isaac could have done the same thing down, down there. Um, uh, Jacob, my goodness, what a mess he is. Joseph and the whole family could have stayed in Egypt all along the way. Pharaoh could have killed all the Hebrews, but the midwives are there. Moses escapes um, and, and, and delivers the people. All along the way, we see God's providential hand. Even when it looks like God's will, will, God will fail his promises, he won't. Death will not have to win. The serpent will not be victorious. And you and I cannot thwart the plan and the will of God. That's good news. That's good news. Okay. It's an ugly text. Um, but Jesus is at the end of this story, isn't he? Um, he's the son of Jacob. He's the son of Isaac. He's the son of Abraham. But he's a true and better, better one. And he didn't come to give us 12 sons. He, he, he raised up 12 disciples. And from them we get the kingdom of God. And this is a far better picture than what you get in the kingdom of Israel. Okay, how about we call it a night? Um, Don, because you've been so helpful, and I can't call on Danny. You, uh, you close this out in prayer? Can I ask you a question? Yeah, I'll make up the answer.